you get that prompt book, it's very quick. And there it is. <laughs> Not subtle. Got it. Well, it's like it's officially started now. Uh, so welcome, everybody. We're back at it again, me and Chris, uh, along with Kathleen and Emma, our two guests for today, uh, two contributors to issue 12, issue 14, talking about editing. <laughs> uh, issue 14 from May. Um, two contributors, and uh, we'll start with a, a brief introduction. You know me, you know Chris. Um, so uh, Kathleen, you're here first, if you wouldn't mind uh, saying a little bit about yourself uh, and well, get things started. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I'm. It's really a privilege to be invited to uh, have this conversation with you and with, with Emma. I really appreciate it. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, when we weren't recording, the issue is really beautiful. It's just laid out um, so in such a, a lovely, flowing way. You know, I read through the entire thing and I was just taken from one piece to the next to the next. I loved how the work, uh, the visual artwork was interspersed uh, within the sections. And um, and I really appreciated uh, where my work was placed. I have a, it's actually a very big paper piece in real life. It's kind of, you know, really, really pretty big and very awkward when I was making it, very awkward to handle it um, because I'm not a big person, but I do these big things. Um, and that piece is it's a biodiversity refuge and um, i'm a transplant from the east coast to the west coast a really long time ago actually i've lived more than half my life out here in the west but i'm originally from new jersey and when i first moved out to the pacific northwest um i just could not and i, I was traveled i mean i've been to europe i've been here i've been there but i hadn't been west of philadelphia and it's like going to another country uh out here in the pacific northwest um i the sky was like really big uh and um you know, the mountains were, you know, it was, it was really a different, a really different ball game than growing up in Elizabeth, New Jersey. You know, I've done a lot of touring around the Pacific Northwest and I love Eastern Oregon. And I had the opportunity twice to attend uh, an incredible residency at the Playa Foundation out at Summer Lake, Oregon. It's in the, what's considered, or the Oregon Outback, the high desert area. Um, and um, I was there during uh, like August, it was like late August, early September, the one time. And the lake, Summer Lake, was completely dried up. You could walk across the entire lake bed about 
five miles. And uh, all of those cracks and uh, it was just, you know, the cracked, you know, lake bed. It was really quite remarkable. And I, I had thought to myself, how amazing this is just as a physical phenomenon that, you know, the lake dries up completely and then it replenishes. And uh, because that area is a major flyway for migratory birds. What an amazing thing this is that it completely dries up and then it replenishes and it, it does this cycle, right? Cycle of life. And then I came to find out that the reason that it dries up completely is because of all of the water that is used for agriculture in that area. And um, because it is in Lake County, Oregon, there are more cows than people. The agriculture that supplies that cattle industry is really big there. What I thought was a naturally occurring event was actually people made for hamburgers. Um, and I did this piece, Refuge, as a, and juxtaposes, I juxtaposed patterns of taken from the wildlife refuge that are in the background of the piece. And then the cutouts are those negative spaces that are extracted from that natural landscape and represent that dried, the pattern of the dried lake bed that is taking from that landscape. So that's a little bit about that piece. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, and one of the things, you're welcome. Yeah, the one of the things that like stands out about it, I just had it up on my screen as well, um, is those, those cracked areas. So your eyes are just kind of drawn into those areas, even though the rest of the piece is so lush and green and with the, with the yellows and kind of the, the uh, foliage and get, get the feeling of the, um, the replenishment you were talking about. So yeah, it's an interesting uh, piece. I'll, uh, I'll post a link to it in our description as well. So you can get there if you haven't seen it already. That's, uh, I always like getting the, uh, a little behind the scenes. So yeah, we got kind of the the place location on that one and some of the process, which is always uh, interesting to hear. So thanks. And our other uh, participant uh, today, Emma. Hi, thank you. Uh, well, first of all, Kathleen, I really loved your piece. I think it's really beautiful and you're clearly very talented. I love how in this journal, the visual arts and the literary arts go together. Um, so my piece is called, and she asked me, have you ever been in love? And um, this poem is about how the start of a romantic relationship is often so blissful and so euphoric that we often fail to see that this apparent perfection can be quixotic and fabricated. And as the relationship progresses, if the pair isn't meant for one another, then this masquerade begins to crumble and 
with each successive stanza of my poem, the narrator, who is my 18-year-old self, begins to realize that her relationship was birthed from this idealistic sort of light and that nothing genuine and long-lasting would come of it and that she needed to end things with this person or as the last few lines of my poem say, she needed to return their love seed and beg them to plant it elsewhere. So I often use poetry as a form of coping with things that happen. I write a lot of love poetry after breakups or after someone that I like doesn't like me back. You know, I kind of use it as my own personal diary that I then share with the world. Yeah, that's uh, totally foreign to me, Chris, but you're, uh, you probably have no, no idea what I was talking about, I'm sure. So I'm, uh, I feel like uh, that has to, the word genre isn't strong enough. Uh, coping mechanism, crutch, uh, and therapy, in my case. So I absolutely love uh, that process. And I've gotten into some fun reflexive situations where the person saw the thing that was written about them, which added a new layer or maybe a new dimension to a relationship or a chapter that wouldn't have been there. Or maybe it's snuffed a chapter out. Chapter out. But yeah, that whole meta-reflexive process of trying to explore relationships through writing is something very close to my heart. <laughs> yeah, I'm just having a bit of fun. I'm, I hope we didn't take that too seriously. <laughs> um, that makes, yeah, that makes uh, perfect sense. And what I, I, you know, one of the things that stood out to me about, about your piece was it does have that feel of like that journal kind of emotional impact, but the language of it and the presentation of the language is clearly not like what, you know, I'm sure what you wrote in the journal is very different and what typically what gets written in journals is, um, you know, is not this good in terms of the writing and the quality of the writing. So it still kind of had that feel of it and that's very identifiable, but also it's very much uh, extracted from that and um, taken somewhere else. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I definitely like using I'll, I'll write down my thoughts about something that happens right after it happens, and then I'll sort of take those and try to make it into a more poetic piece sort of after the fact. But in, in general, when anything happens to me that is significant, good or bad, I'll just be like, oh, now I got to write a poem about it. Good, yeah. Um, I got to, I'll tease my question for later on, but um, I think both of your pieces, even the ones visual ones, uh, poem, I think they will kind of both apply to the, the question I have in mind for later. So yeah, that'll be interesting. Thank you both for uh, giving us a little bit of insight into your pieces. We uh, selected, or you two selected, a, a piece that you'd like to talk about and, and connect with a little bit more. Let's do the short one first. Maybe that makes more sense. And the writer, Melissa Mulvihill, the title, A Mouthful of Storm. So if you wouldn't mind, you could share a little bit about why you picked it, what you got out of it, maybe even first reading what, uh, what drew you in. Yeah, so I really loved this piece, both the structure and the message. I love the format, how it's lyrical prose and 
the first sentence is a simple sentence and the majority of the middle is comprised of these complex sentences and then at the very end it goes back to a simple sentence so both in structure and the context and tones of the piece there's this really pleasing symmetry about it um and I really like how the last few words are the title of the piece I always love when literary works do that um I love seeing how titles are incorporated into the piece and um I I love pieces like this that take something that is seemingly trivial and unassuming like wind and kind of zooms in and explores a deeper meaning because obviously wind is something that we experience all the time and for someone to take that and think this is more meaningful than what we see at the surface and to write something like this I think is really amazing. And back to the final line, um, which is, this is everything I can say with a mouthful of storm. I like how it's such a short and seemingly simple piece that builds off brevity in both its structure and meaning. But then the last line reflects on how I see it, how the speaker has a finite quantity of their feelings that they can express in this piece due to the strength and nature of the feelings. I just really like how, like I said, this piece really builds off brevity, but it's very purposeful brevity. Wonderful, yeah. Thank you for uh, adding those ideas in there. That's not even necessarily something I noticed quite so much in my reading was the structure. It's a, it's a block of text, you know, one one paragraph or stanza, depending how you want to cut it. Um, but just like you said, first sentence short, last sentence short, and then lots of complexity in the middle. I'm going to have to consult my notes, but Kathleen, did you want to chime in or have any initial uh, thoughts, but particularly because they both have what I think maybe a little bit of an environmental uh, itch to them, though the second one is, is much more in that uh, vein, but... Kathleen, any, any so they, ideas? Both, they do, they, you know, that piece does reference the environment and the environment as experienced by a self. I felt that it was very personal and uh, that, that line, a mouthful of storm, I mean, you just can't beat that. It's so visual and visceral. And I think work that I am very attracted to is work that I can see. I did not pick up on the structure in the way that you're picking up on it because I'm I'm not a poet. Um, I'm I appreciate I'm a reader and a feeler of of poetry, but I'm not a poet. But yes, that is it works, it's quite effective because it just captures you and that that it's like a bullet point at the beginning and then or if we were with uh, uh screenwriting it's like a cold open and a tag and then you've got you know act one act two act three in between it just plays out in that way that you get this entire story and then there it, there's a button on it love it uh 
Emma, you're, are you local? Do you know anything about Buffalo or Lake Erie or anything like that? I do not know. Yeah, so my my relationship to this piece unfolded because I live right near Lake Erie and I live in Buffalo. So I'm always suspicious of local themed pieces. I just have this kind of allergy, partly because I had the experience that Kathleen had of, of going away. I moved to Beaumont, Texas for a long time, which wasn't like another country. It was more like another planet, but kind of coming and going and wanting to come home and the things that are positive and the things that are negative. I'm always a little bit anxious when I see a local piece that makes local references. So I, I came in suspicious. So my first experience of the poem was, okay, there's going to be a local poet about local nature things. Then I immediately got into the imagery of the storm and I figured out eventually, first read through, a mouthful of storm could partly be literal. This is somebody on a Lake Erie experiencing a thunderstorm rolling in and they're actually kind of leaning into it and the wind is blowing into their mouth, kind of breathing into them and that's kind of electric. I love that. I'll admit that I'm, I think there's a lot of people like me who get high as a kite before a big storm comes, right? There's something electric and exciting and there's a, an energy to that that just, I gravitate to. I'm not a risk taker. I'm not an adrenaline junkie. But that particular moment before a big storm is happening seems very rich and very pregnant. There's a lot of good stuff going on. I looked at lines like, old things are destroyed, and I nod, and I said, okay, that's the circle of life, that's familiar. But then we get to the dried up lake bed, and this reminded me, Kathleen, of you mentioning a dried up lake bed. This gives a little ecological edge for me, because uh, there, are, there are lakes in the United States right now that are drying up, and old mafia assassinations are being found. <laughs> in other words, the mafia is now worried about climate change because it's revealing things, it's uncovering things from the past. And I'm sure that wasn't necessarily directly intended, but dried up lake beds, and water moving, it's, it's a lot of stuff happening for me there. And then I said, okay, do I buy the, the mouthful of wind or the mouthful of storm? Does that, there's a movie called A Box of Moonlights. Is that a little, is that a little forced? But the physicalization of it, like you're getting the wind hitting you in the mouth and kind of maybe forcing breath into you. Then there's an equation of uh, wind or time, like wind and time might be something that are forces that are kind of moving things forward, moving lakes, moving uh, glaciers. And so I got time, okay, wind, the wind is being breathed in and breathing itself. We got uh, Brahma, breath the, um, being uh, breathed into is like the uh, many versions of God. So there's maybe a little bit of a religious undertone and I don't have to have it there, but the layers started adding, adding up. Even though I came to it initially very suspiciously, I kind of felt one layer after a layer. And by the time I was done, it kind of hit me. And I was like, oh, hell, I'm all right. I kind of want to go to Lake Erie right now. Uh, there's a big storm coming in and, and lean into it. So the, the, piece captured me that way and seduced me and it was great. I like that too. The um, the breath thing is what caught my attention, but I think you're on to something. Yeah, because I mean, there is creation and destruction. That goes back to the, you know, like you're mentioning, mythological context. That's right there, in breath, out breath, creation, destruction. We got it. So yeah, I think those, those 
things, those elements are in there. Uh, if you want, if you want to make the connection, um, so yeah, I like that you mentioned that because that's not something I noticed again on first or second read even. Yeah, I, I ended up. I, I had highlighted um, one sentence, kind of midway, and this is it. I say, please carry me, but not forever. And they say, please understand that nothing gets made until all old things are destroyed. That hit me, even if it had not been partially italicized. <laughs> that seemed like a very important and um, piece of, of dialogue in the midpoint of this piece, because it, it is dialogue. It's I say, and then they say, please carry me, but not forever. You know, I got to think of like, what does that, what does that mean? you know, but not forever. And that nothing gets made until old things are destroyed. That is, that is part of the, the whole creative process. You, you know, it, it's, for me, it's, uh, you know, it's rough drafts. It's those early sketches. It's those, those, uh, the impulse to create that, often is a, a good beginning, but it's not the finished, it's not the, the completion, because it's very impulsive, it's a flash. And uh, for me, the important thing in my creative practice is to retain that inspiration, whatever you want to call it, but then bring my, my knowledge and my craft to the forming of something that then can communicate to others. And um, so that whole, you know, talking about nothing gets made until things are destroyed uh, spoke to me in terms of my creative life, but just life in general. And there's the important word too in that, section the all old things <laughs> that just adds that kind of there's a a little more of a a moment of pause and you say well i don't want all old things destroyed mm -hmm. those the old things over there let's find get rid of those old things but i like some of them but yeah that's just the nature of them that's why it does have that uh, the 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 depth of it and the that's that finality of it. Possibly some people might have that appeal, Chris, of a, a storm coming or watching it come down the lake and the anticipation maybe or something that's, you know. And the, the inspiration factor. And I, I think I'm out of my pay grade right now, but I think uh, inspiration uh, and aspiration and uh, inspiritus sanctus all have some kind of Latin relationship so that breath um, and mm -hmm. inhaling or being breathed into kind of, all, I hope, uh, uh, tie into each other in a, in a way that I think thematically scans perfectly. Because uh, you do feel inspired when the storm's coming, or I do. If they're not yeah, related, think, they should be. Yeah, I think the words um, 
Forever and Destroyed are really interesting here and how they kind of go together. Um, it has to be fleeting. I feel like a lot of good things in life have to be fleeting and that's what makes them so good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's that knowledge that they are fleeting that make them especially sweet. Yeah. Thanks for your thoughts on this one. Let's take a, uh, did you have something? I mean, just as a to, to uh, bookend this, I feel generationally I have an obligation, being exactly the age that I am, thirty-nine and three quarters, to mention uh, the line from I don't know who the band is, but it's a song called "Closing Time," which was the obvious successor to uh, "Piano Man" by Billy Joel, which has the quote in it: uh, "Every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end," and I, I felt that articulated more intelligently and thoughtfully here um we even without the music mm-hmm. <laughs> you ready for this the band name anybody know the band name semi-sonic ah. can't stump can't stump that their only album ever and we, <laughs> we did not talk about this anything yeah, ever one again one hit wonder 90s one hit wonders can't stop me um so yeah that is a good uh, good way to bookend it, as you said. Uh, yeah, let's move on to uh, Kathleen's selection, the title, Fortson, and the writer, Don Erickson. Don Erickson, yes. And uh, before I go into that, I just wanted to say to Emma that I so enjoyed your piece as well and the the cycles that it depicted with wisdom, practicality, (laughs) and an incredible generosity for both the lover, but also the self. And I was, I was struck by that. Um, uh, Just really, just a beautiful piece. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. You had me at practicality. That's, I think, one of the most underrated literary qualities to have. And this is coming from somebody who quotes Henry David Thoreau on the website. So take take that with a grain of salt. It's great. I always love having kind of the, the contributors not only make their own selections, but then also kind of you know speak about each other's pieces. It's it's always uh it's always fun to have that dynamic. So thanks for adding that, Kathleen. You're welcome. And with Fortson, uh, there were just so many beautiful pieces. I was making so many notes on my, you know, legal pad uh, about different works that struck me. And many of them did. Um, And Fortson, however, I was just taken into that scene. It was like I was just physically transported. It takes place in the Pacific Northwest. So this is an area that I am familiar with, but it wasn't just the location or the scene. I was taken emotionally into that place, into a place of considering the past. Um, Also a little bit of a, a, a side note, um, I, I have an only child, a son. He's 
really old now, but he's still my kid. Um, and when he was young, I, I just drug that child all over the Pacific Northwest to have experiences and adventures. And we did. We drove all over the place. And we went to places like that and, you know, scrambled about uh, finding treasures, leaving them there, but finding things. And, uh, and so there was a bit of nostalgia for me in reading that. But that nostalgia went back even further because I started thinking about all of the, uh, the stuff of my life, all the, the stuff of my family's life, uh, the stuff of the culture's life. And what is that fascination that we all seem to have with that stuff? And I loved um, the one line uh, where the, the son says, I just want to be remembered. It's just so straightforward. And then she says, it, it's an ancient urge to be remembered. Drawings on a cave wall, handprints on a rock, the urge to collect, preserve, and save, to group and label equally ancient. What is it about making things? You know, I'm a maker. I make these things. It's my expression and my response to a moment or a situation that I'm experiencing. But is this how I'm remembered? You know, there's this thing about, you know, thinking about legacy. And also I start thinking about all of those left behinds because in this story, there's this old ax that then the kids find and they do leave it and they cover it up kind of protectively. What is it about these left behinds? What is the real value of them to us? Is it that they then allow us to create stories, um, stories that, that edify and examine our lives? How does the past live through our stories? And how does that past actually help us to appreciate the now through a recognition of what was? You know, I'm actually in the process of, of looking at a lot of this stuff in my own life, downsizing, all of that. And what is it about that that is so satisfying? You know, getting, you know, collecting this stuff, making this stuff that's so informed. And really, I built my life on it. And then the poignancy of looking at it from a vantage point and seeing it not as the thing, but as the feeling. Is that the real legacy? And can I then look at stuff? And rather than coveting it, 
having to own it, can I cover it up with the moss as those children did and leave it, but take the story, take the feeling. So it was, um, I, I really, I enjoyed the description of place. I enjoyed uh, the story of uh, the mother and the son, uh, the friends, the adventure. What's the real heart of that piece? And why did it make me feel so emotional? You know, it, it, it wasn't about the acts. <laughs> So, um, you know, it gave me, gave me a lot to, to consider. Well, I, uh, I, I will admit that I read this uh, maybe four or five hours ago and involuntarily wrote a thesis on it because it attacked me. This one started with an advantage, immediately took me to a different place that wasn't local. So immediately that I see the moss and the old growth trees of the Pacific Northwest. So it it already had kind of captured me, but I was I was reading this in public and I was right on the close to losing it. I almost was weeping by the end. Um, so I have a lot to say, but Emma, you want to go first because I I may <laughs> I may kind of unspool. What are your first impressions, or, or what kind of thoughts do you have before I tear into this? Yeah, so I really loved this piece, um, and I think Kathleen has some really good, profound thoughts on it. Um, I, I really like the first line and just the imagery of the trees. Um, I think that this piece has some really stunning imagery that really pulls you in rather than feeling like fluff or being distracting. Because I think sometimes, especially in prose, um, there can be too much description or a description that doesn't really add to the piece. But in this case, it's it felt very, meaningful and I wasn't sitting there thinking like, oh God, when is the description gonna end? I just thought it was really beautiful. Um, there's a lot of short, simple sentences while providing the background and the imagery. And I really like that too. You know, I'm, I'm an editor, my dad's an editor. So I tend to look at things through a very editor view, um, but I really like the structure of this and the symbolism of the longevity of the forest and the youth of the two boys. I think they're eight years old. I thought that was really interesting and how these young boys are talking about things like, I just wanna be remembered and asking all these questions about the various things in the woods. They seem very, precocious and like very wise beyond their years, the young boys. Um, and I thought the imagery of the old destroyed doll um, was interesting. And I like how the author Don said that it probably belonged to a child who is grown up now and gone away from here. I thought that was really fascinating to think about. So. All in all, I just thought this was a really, like it's a simple piece, but yet it's so complex at the same time. It's simple at the surface level, but once you really think about it, it's very, very complex and very, has a lot of, leaves you thinking about your own life and your own place on this earth. 
Aaron, if you have some kind of a code, like a uh, get, you'll get a piece of paper to hold up when I, if I go too long, because this one really attacked me. And if I oh, get wow. out of school, it's been like, all right, here's your five minute warning, buddy. Um, yeah, so this had me because it's a foreign location that I've been to. So I have some sense memory of Pacific Northwest forests. So as soon as we're in the world of the old growth trees and the moss right there. And so I was kind of relieved immediately starting, but then it's attacking me on multiple levels. Cause then there's this forensic understanding of trees and how trees work. And I think trees are pretty neat. It's not like a thing that I'm obsessed with, but hearing people talk passionately about different kinds of trees, for instance, there's a specific kind of birch that one person described as, the birch trees that live fast die young because they only live from 75 to 100 years old. Those are the trees that just like burn out quick, man. Like that's, that feels beautiful. I talk passionately about trees in particular. Nature, sure, maybe something about trees. I'm not sure uh, what that's hitting, but it's 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 attacking me somewhere beneath the logical brain. Um, then we get into the archaeological stuff. So right now I'm in the process of finishing moving my dad out of his house because he can't do his own stairs anymore. And I moved him in with me. So I took on the responsibility of being the family archivist, right? My parents had a profound divorce, like an angry, terrible divorce um, twice. And each time both parents wanted to throw everything out get rid of all the pictures, get rid of all the heirlooms, anything in a frame. And, you know, brothers on this side, brothers on that side. I said, no, nah, I feel like we should save this. Um, even if it's just for me, let me be the one who kind of sneaks in between the warring factions to save the family heirlooms and the little record player and the little knickknacks, the German beer steins uh, on both sides. And I was going to be the repository. And that felt good because like, all right, I, I know this stuff will be important for me in a very short period, maybe 10 or 20 years. I'll be glad I have this stuff. I've lived long enough to know how that works. And there was a line in here. It was, uh, what's this? Uh, it's just plain old garbage. And that one, that's, they got, they hooked me, right? Okay. And the following line is, but wait 50 years and then it will officially be an archeological valuable artifact. And I know enough about an individual life. So as the family archivist who is in charge of the old Earl Garner records and my mom's Beatles records, like, well, I'm not worried about that they're valuable because they're not, they're broken, but they're going to be valuable. So they represent something worth keeping. There's this weird sense of responsibility though. Now I'm the family's museum keeper. I'm the one that has to be in charge of all the artifacts. And, this is practical things. How do I store them without them decomposing? Because everything, like the saw, is rusting away and decomposing in real time. And I had a little light when they buried it. Ah, maybe it'll be there for the next several generations. And then another part of me is like, it's also going to completely rust away and oxidize, and it'll be gone in several generations unless somebody puts it in a museum, which is an Indiana Jones reference. Uh, which hits another part of my brain at Indiana Jones. There's a line in Indiana Jones, an archaeologist who says things has to be in a museum. The evil character in that movie says a line basically close to this. 
uh, here's a worthless watch, waving a little gold watch. He says, right now it's worth $25, but you bury it in the sand for a thousand years, it becomes priceless. Like, oh, hell, this, 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 this is working on so many of these uh, different levels. Then the owl hoots. Like I'm getting into this philosophical mindset and the punctuation of the owl actually spooked me a little. Like that moment where there's a parent and child and my dad was great. He took me out of the woods and, and kind of took me on these journeys, both in nature, but also to be aware of archeological, historical family heirloom objects and primed me for all that imagery. That owl spooked me. It just sliced through all the nostalgia and fun philosophical stuff. And so when we get on the other side of the owl, everything has a little bit more weight, everything's a little bit heavier. Thinking about um, grave diggers or grave robbers and people who uh, pilfer from archaeological sites in ancient Egypt from thousands of years ago. And we've gone on this parent-child journey. It's me. We've gone on this archaeological journey, like human history scale, but also individual family, what it means to have heirlooms and to keep heirlooms and to try to just have some continuity. Uh, in, in an individual family within a few generations, I was exhausted. I got to the end of that and I was like, I need a break. I need to go outside and take a walk. So yeah, it was, it was beautiful. It hit me on multiple weak spots and I love it as a result of that. And that uh, kind of, it didn't sneak up on me because I wanted to like it based on the Pacific Northwest imagery. It won me over there and it just beat me all the way down. And I was happy to have been crawling up the stairs by the end of it. That's so interesting that you had that journey. I wouldn't have predicted it. Like that's the fun thing about hearing your reaction to some of these pieces that I don't know ahead of time. Like this is one I wouldn't have like thought that it just kind of hit all those different areas. But it makes total similar sense. To like Kathleen, the parent-child thing got me immediately because similar to Kathleen, my dad drug me all over the place into the woods and uh, libraries and on adventures and. I'm scrambling up uh, ravine faces, but this is a complete coincidence. When I was nine years old, we had a kind of an old farmhouse and it had a barn. And I'm stomping around in the barn, just exploring. And I stomp on the, the floor and I feel something weird. And there's a samurai sword from World War II. The previous owner had scrambled back and I discovered this artifact and my world just opened up. I just, I entered into a fairy tale that, you know, based on some of the stories he'd been telling me, the A. Jones and stuff. And so, yeah, the idea of finding an ancient artifact, imagining a whole history that you know, physical concrete object, like that's, that really happened. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Wow. I was hoping you'd get to the Indiana Jones reference, but you did. <laughs> yeah. So thank you. that confirms my yeah, expectation. That that yeah, you knew I would go there. Um, but I didn't know the samurai story. Samurai sword story. Holy cow. So yeah, that I mean, this, sure, I love the... Got it. That one's going to the kids. I know. The literal literal layers of it were kind of like peeling, digging, and we're finding out more about you as we go through it. Um, I love that kind of connection because I it just, even from the beginning of this piece, we have that ability to attach to it. I think it's like the first line gets us to engage, I think. I see a flash of my son's gray t-shirt as he veers into the alders before he is swallowed by their blotchy white trunks. 
we get enough visual imagery to attach to, but then, like you said, okay, somebody speaking about their son, it's probably a childhood aged son. And then we get that line of dialogue. I want something of mine in a museum today. I hear him say over her shoulder. So we get that artifact, that desire to keep, desire to protect, desire to save, to preserve. Reading those two sentences, I said, okay, now I, I gotta pay attention to this one, right? We got the nature, we got even arts. If it's a you know, museum, there's kind of an art artifact aspect of it. It's like, okay, or this could go into good territory, I hope, and obviously it did because it, you know, it's it's in here and it's published and we're talking about it. Um, but just from those two lines, I'm like, this could be something, just that dichotomy. But yeah, I'm glad you got all those kinds of references to it and then adding everybody's thoughts. I just wanted to say that there were a number of, of um, pieces in the journal that filled me with emotion. And th this one, it really did hit me. And I, I was crying. And there isn't anything particularly sad in it. I mean, nothing horrible or sad happens, really. Uh, you know, no one gets injured, no one dies, no one, you know, all of that. But it just, it made me weep. And it also, I like the Indiana Jones reference as well, because this whole piece was like an archaeological dig. Uh, we start off at a top level, and then we go deeper, deeper, deeper. And then we kind of come out of it a bit. Uh, at the end, uh, those last lines, all our, our longing ancient as the river to be remembered like water maybe flowing over rock and sand, dawn until dusk and into the next day, always there and a part of the living. Like always there, but, but we're living and everything is so transitory, but it's, there's also this constant as well. And the constant I think is because we're, we're always being remembered or those things are being remembered by the living. So it's always there and it's always, it's contemporary, even though it's from the past um, because of us and because of those who will come after us. You know, to be remembered like water maybe flowing over rock and sand. Well, what water does if it flows over rock and sand enough, and for long enough, it reforms it, it shapes it. And then how we experience that erosion is part of our now. So it's just, I really kind of love how I went down and then I came back up in that. Piece. That's so cool. Yeah, it's so great to hear everybody's take on it. We're at about an hour, so if you don't mind, I'll do a I'll do a false close. Don't disconnect yet, but I'll say thank you both for joining us. It was great talking to you. Um, we'll continue the conversation in a moment, but for now, we'll say talk to you later. Mm -hmm.